a Lifetime Original Podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 1 of Lifetime's new original series, Text Me When You Get Home, focuses on Kenya Monhey. On March 31st, 2011, Kenya and her friends are at the 24K Club in downtown Denver. Kenya is only 19, but she has a fake ID. She's a petite woman, only 4'11", with long, straight hair and dark eyeliner. She usually wears pink, but tonight, she's in a black skirt and jacket with red heels. She and her friends stand at the bar drinking and dancing. Kenya works hard in school and at her job so that she can party on the weekends. She loves going out with her friends and her boyfriend, Leo. Around 11 p.m., Kenya sets her purse and her phone on the bar and goes to the bathroom. Alone. Her friends don't notice she's gone at first, but they keep an eye out for each other. They know there are dangerous men lurking in the night. But when they leave the club, Kenya is nowhere to be found. They text and call her over and over. But they'll never be answered. What happened to Kenya Monhey? How did she disappear out of thin air? And will she ever be found? I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Being a teenager is hard. Everything seems to change so fast. You're dealing with growing pains, uncomfortable conversations. You're finding out who you are and what you want to be. And at 12 years old, Kenya Monhe is doing all of that. But she's also making a huge move from Honduras to Denver, Colorado. Her mother immigrated a few years earlier and got married to Kenya's now stepfather, Tony. And now Kenya is moving to go live with them. Now, Kenya is just a nice person. She's super sweet, and she actually acclimates to this new life in Colorado pretty easily. I mean, she has a half-brother and a half-sister. Together, they're a family. You know, she's moved to be with her family. She and her half-sister, Kim, they are incredibly close. They text and they call each other every single day, and their relationship is really, really special. And her stepdad, Tony, becomes more than just a stepdad. He's her father, and she calls him dad, and they love each other. She didn't like stepfather. She said, I don't feel like that. And I told her, I don't feel like that either. She said, do we have to use that? I said, do you want to use it? She says, no, I don't. You're my dad. There was nothing else we were ever going to be. And she just looked up at me, and she said, uh, um... And she just looked at me and said, thank you, Daddy. They have such a sweet relationship. It warms my heart. But it's still a difficult adjustment for Kenya. I mean, she does speak mostly Spanish at the time, and she has to learn English quickly. But she does. And after six years, Kenya graduates from one of the top high schools in Denver, fluent in English, and she's decided on a career path. She actually wants to be a film director and a producer and work behind the scenes creating amazing stories. And that was totally my jam, actually in high school too. Actually, I went to a public arts magnet school in, get this, hmm. Denver. <gasps> and so I'm gonna act majored, shocked, but I know that. <laughs> yeah, but you majored in like an art form there and I majored in cinema. I wanted to do the same stuff Kenya does. I feel like if we would have known each other, then we would have been friends. 
she graduates and at 19 years old, she wants a taste of independence, you know? So she moves out of her family home and she goes to move in with her boyfriend, Leo. And her family at this point is incredibly supportive. They just, they trust her. And so she moves in with Leo. When I was told that that was her decision to do that, I didn't have a problem with it. You know, it's like, okay, I mean, this is, I did the same thing at the same age, you know? And it was like, yeah, okay, this is, this is what you do. So 19 years old, she's living her independent life. She has a job. She has a boyfriend. But she's still 19 years old, right? She's at that stage in her life where she's not a girl, not yet a woman. No, she's just figuring out this whole adulting thing. And I think it's safe to say that at 19, all of us were trying to figure out the whole adulting thing. Definitely. And I can only speak for myself, but I felt at that time you were just trying on different versions of yourself to see which one was the real you. Mm-hmm. And part of that is going out, going to clubs, going to nightclubs. So on weekends, that's what she would do. She would go out with her friends to the bars and she would just let loose. So Kenya loves nothing more than to go out and dance at clubs with her friends. Who can blame her? It's 2011. I think moves like Jagger probably just came out. So. Really? Like that long ago? Definitely. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> That's wild. Uh, so she has to come prepared, though, when she goes out on the weekend. She has her fake ID ready at the door. It's March 31st, and Kenya is going out with her friends to a club in lower downtown Denver, which I believe they call... Lodo. Lodo, mm-hmm. which I, you know, I love an abbreviated neighborhood. Um, so they go to Lodo, and they go to this bar called Lavish. So at this bar, they present their IDs. They get turned away. They're caught. But for some reason, the bouncer gives them back their fake IDs, which I actually love. The bouncer's like, listen, I know this is a hurdle to get them. Take these back. Try somewhere else. I can in good conscience let you in. So then they go to another bar. They're not troubled. The street is lined with bars. So if they get turned away at one, they have like a block of options. Well, and they find the good option eventually, which is apparently the 24K lounge. The bouncer there is uh, easily fooled by their IDs and their charm. I should say that not that many people were fooled by my fake ID, and even fewer people have been fooled by my charm. Despite the name of the lounge that they go to, 24K, it is not, in fact, the gold standard of clubs. The entrance is through a back alley, and inside the club is dark and cheap, and the only light in there, it comes from a crystal chandelier, and then that underglow from the acrylic liquor shelves and flashing rave lights. There are pictures of naked women on the walls, and the dance floor is just packed with people. I think all of us can really place ourselves in this because we've all been to a club like this. Kenya and her friends get drinks and they just party the night away. But I should say, Kenya, you know, she knows her limits. She's not trying to get hammer time drunk. She has just enough to have a good time. But then around 11 p.m., she gets separated from this group of friends she came with and leaves her phone and purse on the bar. She goes to the restroom and never comes back. Her phone starts buzzing with texts asking, where are you? Are you okay? Text me when you get home. And so when her friends eventually leave the club that night, and to me, that's a that's a bit of a shock. But again, we've all been 19. We all, we all make these type of decisions. They leave without Kenya. I do think that this decision to leave without her might haunt them for the rest of their lives because those texts that they send checking in on her, they will never be answered. The next day, Friday, April 1st, Kenya's sister Kim hasn't heard from her. That's super unusual. Carrie, you were saying they were close. They text all day long. But on this day, Kenya is just radio silent. So there are some red flags starting to emerge, but not necessarily, I don't know, enough to feel alarmed. It's April 1st. I mean, could be an April Fool's. Or maybe she's busy at work. Maybe she's just away from her phone. It is not until Leo, Kenya's boyfriend, calls Kim that Kim truly begins to worry. I remember I was folding towels and I was on the phone with my friend and I get a call from my sister's boyfriend. And I'm like, oh, girl, let me call you back. My sister's boyfriend's calling me. It may be some drama or something. I'm ready to hear it. So I answer the call and he's like, hey, have you heard from your sister? No, why? What's going on? And he's like, well, she didn't come back home last night. 
he was like, yeah, the girls that she was with, uh, they don't know where she's at either. And I'm just like, it's April Fool's. Are you playing like this is a sick joke? I Like, where's my sister? He's like, no, Kim, I, I promise it's not a joke. So Kim gets off the phone and she immediately calls her dad and she tells him that nobody has heard or seen Kenya since last night. And immediately the alarm bells just start ringing in his brain. If Kenya hasn't spoken to her sister or her mom at all yet, he knows something's up. Something has to be wrong. So he goes into high alert. He immediately calls the police and files a missing persons report. Let me know. We'll contact your money. And if she hasn't come home, you know, we'll look into this a little bit more. And she's most likely going to be home. So, you know, got off the phone and I was pissed. The police weren't going to do anything for at least a couple of days. But that obviously, when it's your kid, that's not going to be good enough. He's her dad. He has to trust his blink. And he knows that something has happened to her. And that if that's the case, you don't have a lot of time. So he reaches out to Kenya's friends to get any details that he can about this night out they had. They told me she left all of her stuff there, her purse, her phone and all that. I said, you have it? And she said, yes, you know. And I just told her, look, I need that phone and I need it now. Her friends come over as soon as they can and they bring with them her purse and phone. And Kenya's dad, he's taking all this in and he wants to look through her phone to see if he can find any information about what happened last night so they could just find out anything about where Kenya is. Luckily, Kenya's mom does know the code to her phone, so they unlock it and they're able to start going through her messages. And her phone is full of texts from her friends asking where she is, are you okay, did you get home all right, are you safe? But one of these text messages really stands out, and it's from an unknown number. And we see a text message from this guy named Travis. And the text message reads like, hey, this is Travis, the guy with the white creepy van. Did you make it home okay? Kenya's dad, Tony, he immediately starts calling this number, and he calls it over and over and over again no answer. And he becomes laser focused on this number. He knows the key to finding Kenya lies with the man with the creepy white van. I must have called that phone number 20, 25 times over the next 24 hours. And I left messages. So we're back to a reluctant standstill at this point because the police still haven't taken action and this lead isn't answering. But everybody's really worried. They want to do something. So Kenya's friends start putting out missing posters with her face and her description on them, and they say last seen at the 24K Club on March 31st. So the next day, still no one has heard from Kenya. She is still missing, and Tony is just stuck in limbo. All he can do is think about his daughter. And just when he thinks there is nothing left for him to do, his phone rings. On the night of April 2nd at about 8 p.m. is when I got my first call from Travis Forbes. We started talking, you know, nice guy, I'm thinking, you know, and I said, well, you seem to be the last person to have spoken to us, so can you kind of tell me what happened? And he proceeded to tell me. Travis tells Tony that around 2 a.m. on April 1st, he's dropping one of his friends off at an apartment in downtown Denver, and he sees Kenya out front talking to a homeless guy. Apparently, she's crying, talking about breaking up with her boyfriend, Leo, and saying to, I guess, anyone that'll listen, why do men treat women like that? And Travis is concerned about her, so he kindly asks her if she needs any help. So he lets her use his phone since she doesn't have her phone on her and she calls her friends so that they know where she is and that she's safe, but none of them answer. So then he offers to give her a ride home in his creepy white van. She gets in this creepy white van and they head to her boyfriend's place. It's only about a mile from where Travis works, so it's not out of the way. But along the way, Kenya's still very upset, amped up, and emotional, and she wants to have a cigarette. He explains to me that, you know, as they were leaving downtown, Kenya wanted a cigarette. He said, well, I don't smoke. He said, we see this gas station 
They pulled in. We see this guy, and he was smoking. So Travis then says that Kenya hops out of the van at the gas station, and she bumps a cigarette from this guy who he describes as having a baby face, um, and his name is Dan. And the two of them begin to have a conversation in Spanish, which Travis does not speak. So the conversation between Dan and Kenya is carrying on, and Travis doesn't understand what's being said, so he feels a little impatient, so he ends up driving away from Kenya, leaving her with Dan. And he says he never sees her again. Now, Tony listens very intently to this story, but it it does seem just a little off. Um, Kenya was desperate for a ride home, right? So why is she so readily going to abandon Travis's truck to go have a chit-chat with a stranger? And then why would Travis, who knows she needs help, leave her there? You know, maybe he wasn't such a stand-up guy. Then again... Maybe getting into a stranger's creepy white van wasn't the only weird decision Kenya made that night. Who knows? Kenya's sister, Kim, she has an idea that seems to make sense of this story. Kenya probably did go with Dan because Kenya did smoke cigarettes and she did speak Spanish and she was very friendly. So I thought that it was a credible story. And so Travis, perhaps sensing that Tony doesn't totally trust him, Travis offers to meet Tony at the gas station in question where he dropped Kenya off in his story, and he hopes to explain things further in person. And Tony agrees. Right, but he's he's not going to go meet him without protection. So I don't know how much he trusts him at this point. Before going to meet Travis, he goes and grabs his pistol, which his wife Maria is not thrilled about. Maria was on her hands and knees begging me not to go. She says, Tony, don't, don't do this. So let's just call the police. I said, Maria, we've done that. And so I, I you know, I pulled my arm away from her, you know, and uh, went down my truck and, uh, and I left. Armed with a pistol on his way to meet this mysterious person from a random number, Maria, Tony's wife, Kenya's mother, she feels really worried about this. She's very nervous that something could happen, something could go wrong. So she calls the police and tells them the entire situation because she just has a bad feeling and she's hoping that maybe having some authorities there might diffuse the situation or it won't escalate to something more dangerous just because she's really functioning blindly as well. She's also in a really emotional place at this point with one family member missing and probably just wants to protect everyone else in that family. I mean, she does mean well, but she also does rat him out. So when he gets to this gas station, there's a bunch of police waiting. Um, And an officer asks him, where's your gun? And he says, it's in the glove box. And the cop says, great, leave it there. Um, And the cop also explains, I've already spoken with this guy, Travis searched his van, didn't see anything of note, and Tony can kind of see Travis standing on the other side of this parking lot. He's tall, thin, kind of a clean-cut guy with blonde hair and blue eyes. And this puts Tony a little bit at ease, and he thinks to himself, you know, this looks like the kind of guy I'd want to drive my daughter home at night. And the officer actually does offer Tony the chance to go get some answers. There was no evidence. There was no signs that Kenya had ever been inside of that van front or back. So he had no choice but to take a statement and let him go. He says, hey, would you be interested in talking to uh, Travis over here? He would like to talk to you, you know, before he goes. And I said, yeah, I'd be happy to. When Tony talks to Travis, he describes as Travis as being very apologetic, that he regrets not taking Kenya all the way to her home. He says he feels ashamed and sad that he didn't do the right thing. And while the two of them shake hands to say goodbye, it's very small, it's very slight, but Tony swears that he feels Travis trembling slightly in his grip. But Travis has said... I could have brought her home safe and didn't. So he could be feeling a lot of guilty feelings, a lot of anxiety now talking to her father. He left her with a stranger, a man named Dan, who was perhaps the last person to see Kenya that night. What's so crazy about this is right after Kenya went missing, Tony calls the police and they say they're not going to do anything about it until Monday. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of 
It feels wild to me that at this point the police are getting involved as opposed to following any of the leads that Tony has found beforehand, right? Totally. They kind of strong arm it. It's actually pretty great because they're the ones that get them uh, starting to do anything. The next day, April 3rd, again, day three of Kenya missing, the police finally jump into action and they obtain security footage of Kenya at the Lofts apartment complex. This is the same apartment complex from Travis's story, so where Travis would later run into her in his car. On the footage, we see Kenya entering the building with a man for a couple of minutes and then leaving alone. And then you can see from the windows that outside on the curb, Kenya's talking to this homeless man, just like Travis said. It seems to really validate his story. So police armed with this footage, they call in the man that you see on the security footage and they interview him about what happened that night. He says that he and Kenya were dancing at the club, they got kicked out for unruly behavior, and Kenya walked with him back to his apartment to use the bathroom before she headed home. And this all makes sense with what we see on the security footage, her going in the apartment with him and then leaving a couple of minutes later. Yeah, and then police call in Travis and his girlfriend to get formal statements about this and corroborate Travis's whereabouts that night. Uh, I think right now they're pretty suspicious of him since... They haven't found Dan. He is right now the last known person to see Kenya alive. So they asked Travis to go over his story at the police station, and they really want to know why was he driving around the city in a creepy white van at 2 o'clock in the morning? Okay, but it turns out Travis actually does have a really good reason, which is that he works at a bakery making gluten-free granola bars. Now, I don't, I don't want to yuck anyone's yum, but that's gross. So he delivers these gross granola bars uh, to shops around Denver really, really early in the morning. And he tells them how he found Kenya that night, which is the same story that he told before. Now, District Attorney Carrie Lombardi hears this, and she's incredibly suspicious of the series of events of that evening. Made no sense. He leaves her with somebody like... Who does that? You know, the whole time she was trying to get home, she was trying to get to her car, she was trying to find her friends. Really doubtful she would just leave with a random stranger at a gas station at 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning. But this time, police can confirm at least part of the story. They ask Travis's girlfriend, Carrie, if he arrived at her place that night to sleep. And she confirms that he did. So now he has an alibi. Right. So the police are like, oh. Okay, I guess we have to shift focus and we should try to find this mysterious baby-faced Dan uh, that she shared this cigarette with. So investigators take Travis's description of Dan and they send out a bolo, which (laughs) I read that and I thought that was just one of those braided leather cowboy neckties with like a brooch on it. But it is also an acronym, it turns out, for be on the lookout. So they send this bolo out through Denver Because they want to find Dan. They want to talk to this guy and hopefully find Kenya in the process. So the Denver Post starts publishing a slew of short PSAs and stories about Kenya, including where she was last seen and what she was wearing at the time of her disappearance. In addition, the local news broadcasts a description of Dan. And for Kenya's family, all of this is shots in the dark, but they're desperate for any information and answers and just to find Kenya. On April 5th, five days after Kenya went missing, things really take a turn. Police get a break and they receive a call from Monica Poole. Monica Poole is the owner of Debbie's Bakery. And what's noteworthy about this is Travis actually rents space from Debbie's Bakery to make and sell his gluten-free granola bars. So... She tells them that she's discovered some interesting footage on her security camera. Footage that's pretty disturbing. Monica had long suspected that one of her employees was skimming some money off the top of the profits. So that day she decides to go and take a look at the security camera. But when she goes over to the computer, she's like, huh, the surveillance camera is unplugged weird. She plugs it back in and wants to see what the heck happened, so she rolls back the video to the last thing that it captured. She tells the police that the camera was unplugged on the night of April 1st. 
Now on the footage, you can see Travis in the early hours of April 1st in the morning, pulling a large white cooler, which has been duct taped shut into the bakery's walk-in freezer. And throughout that day, anytime anyone goes into the freezer for any reason, Travis soon follows them so that no one can be alone in the freezer with this cooler. The last thing the cameras capture the evening of April 1st is Travis walking in wearing long yellow rubber gloves and unplugging the camera. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Police are shocked when they see the footage of Travis Forbes moving this very large cooler into Debbie's bakery. And weirder still... The footage shows that after he does this, whenever someone enters that freezer, he follows. It just must be so off-putting to watch, and the detectives quickly serve a warrant for Debbie's bakery. So they rush to the freezer, and they look inside. No cooler. However, behind the building, they do find a burned-out grease barrel, and at the bottom are charred bits of zipper and black clothing. Kenya was wearing black clothing the night she disappeared. With all this new information, the police get a warrant to search Travis's van. And the first thing they notice when they open it is how clean it smells, like bleach clean. And they also find three of Kenya's hairs in the front seat, though that's to be expected based on his story and what he's told the police thus far about her getting a ride from him. But there is one hair in the back of the van, too, which that would be a little bit trickier to explain, I imagine. What stands out most, though, to the lead detective, Nash Grulet, is the tires. The treads are filled with just mud caked in them and weeds. This is the kind of terrain you're not going to be driving through if you're in downtown Denver delivering baked goods to bakeries. So it's clear to the detectives that this van drove on dirt roads somewhere outside the city. But where? So even though the police have an alibi for Travis, with this new information, it does not look good. However, there still isn't enough evidence to actually charge Travis with anything. But the police do get him to agree to come in later that day for a polygraph test. Meanwhile, Kenya's family doesn't know about these new breaks in the case. They're just still hoping and praying that she'll be discovered alive. They hope that the police are going to identify Dan and that Kenya will come home soon. But they're all scared. I mean, they know that the more time that passes since her disappearance, it's another day closer to just the worst-case scenario. But they still have hope that she'll return home. Because what else can you do in that situation? Yeah, Kenya's mom, Maria, tells the Denver Post... I feel like they took my baby daughter, my heart, my soul, my everything. I feel like just running out of this house to go look for her, to find her. I'm so tired. And Kenya's dad, Tony, he's just trying to stay strong for his family. And he doesn't want them to lose hope. When I needed to let it go, I'd go to my Walmart. And I would park way out front. And I'd lose it. Hey, got to go to the store, be back, go pick up a pack of gum just to show that I had went to the store. But 
That's where I went, because I could not do it in my wife's arms or in my children's presence because I was the rock in all this thing, and you know, and I had to maintain that. Tony has no idea that a week after Kenya's disappearance, the police have actually served a warrant for Travis's cell phone records, and they're looking specifically at his travels on April 1st through April 8th. They see on April 2nd that Travis drove northeast out of Denver and stopped on the side of the road just outside a town called Keensburg. And I I lived in Colorado for 18 years of my life, and I can say with some assurity, there's nothing in Keensburg. What were you doing there, Travis? So detectives drive to the last place Travis stopped. It's a flat, woodsy spot by the highway. So they walk the area with bloodhounds. They ride horseback. They go down ATVs. They're in helicopters. They're just looking for any evidence of disturbed earth, for any peculiar activity and evidence of, unfortunately, remains. But after a relentless search, they don't turn anything up. They keep this search really quiet and under the radar because they don't want Kenya's family and friends to know that they're searching for a body. For the police, Travis Forbes is still their key person of interest. There's just so much circumstantial evidence surrounding him that it seems odd that he couldn't be involved somehow or no more information that he's not telling the police. Because even with his alibi from his girlfriend, it's just not adding up. And I watched the video of his girlfriend. And listen, I'm no body language expert. I just play one on our podcast. But her leg is like shaking. Her arms Mm -hmm. are crossed. She is fidgety. Even before this is revealed, you look at it, you're like, something's not right. She's not telling the truth. Yeah, I agree. And then Travis does something that is so mind-blowing, it catches everyone off guard. He agrees to do a live interview on the local news station, Nine News. Like, it's... It's surreal. I I don't even know what to think of it. Um, What's her name? Kenya. Kenya, yeah. Since you're a person of interest, let me ask you this. Did you do something with her? No. Did you kidnap her? No. Did you sexually assault her? I did not. Did you murder her? I did not, no. The footage of this interview is wild. Oh, in that last God. question where they ask, did you murder her? Travis actually nods his head yes in contradiction to what he is saying, which is I did not know. It is like his mouth is saying one thing and unconsciously his body is saying another. In that moment, Kenya's family sees this, her mom and her dad, and they this light bulb goes off, and they see it as an admission of guilt. They could barely stand the offense of not knowing her name. I mean, he met her dad, for Christ's sake, and shook his hand. She's the biggest story in town. Her name is everywhere. He met her in person. How could he not know her name? I'm yeah, sorry. it's crazy. It's so no, angry. No, you should be. That interview, though, it really is the turning point. Whatever Travis was thinking when he agreed to do it, I think it's pretty fair to say it did not go how he had imagined. Totally. And the day Travis is supposed to go to the police station to take his polygraph test, guess what? Absent. (laughs) He doesn't show. Are you surprised? No. And no, he's not at home with his girlfriend. He isn't at work. Police can't find him anywhere. He simply just disappears into thin air. He leaves everyone behind wondering, is there a killer now on the loose? The rest of April doesn't bring any news of Kenya or her whereabouts and her family is waiting. They are waiting and waiting and with Every day that goes by, they are now preparing for the worst, but they are still praying for the best and they never give up hope that she will come home. And with the sudden disappearance of Travis Forbes, suspect number one, the Denver Post publishes a story about his criminal history, which includes convictions for unusual and at times violent behavior towards women which is surprising that this didn't come up when they initially, like, it's a little bit surprising that this is the first time it's coming up. Right. According to this report, Travis had committed several burglaries, including one where he stole three pairs of women's panties, poked holes in two of them, and marked them with the woman's 
first initial. He's also convicted of third-degree assault for throwing rocks at two female joggers, striking one of them in the head. What a just a total asshole. Asshole. Travis, I have to tell you, working out is hard enough. Getting on the gear and deciding to go out and do that jog, that should be the hard part. You shouldn't have assholes throwing rocks at you while you do it. You got to wonder, though, did the cops, how long, like you said, did they know this stuff? Did they know it when Kenya's dad first went to meet Travis at the gas station? And now looking back on that night, Tony's thinking about it. He now remembers that trembling handshake. He also remembers the smell of bleach coming from the van. And those things that seemed so innocuous at the time, they're starting to feel more and more worrisome. Right? It's like hindsight is twenty twenty. This, like, interaction he had, he's just... Because what else can you do with your mind? I feel like he's just breaking down every interaction he had with this guy to see if there's something he missed that would give him more answers as to where Kenya is. On May 4th, a little more than a month after Kenya's disappearance, there is a report of a stolen car that hits police airwaves. The car in question is found in Austin, Texas, and there we find Travis Forbes in the driver's seat. Travis stole the car from his ex-girlfriend, and this gives the detectives an opportunity or probable cause to take a sample of his DNA. So detectives drive down, and they meet him, and they interrogate him and hold him for hours trying to pull out a confession from this guy. They tell him, someone saw you burning something in a grease barrel behind the bakery you work at. But Travis says he was just burning old weed. Which, really, Travis, I would think that any baker worth his salt would know that you can just use old weed to make edibles. Despite the investigator's best efforts, he says nothing incriminating. He won't crack. But they'd still have a criminal charge against him, and so the Denver police extradite him back to Colorado for car theft. And for a moment, it feels like the police finally have a leg up on Travis. They have him right where they want him. He's held in jail. He has a charge that they can use on him as leverage. But as quickly as they got that leg up, it went away because after a month, Travis's ex-girlfriend drops the charges against him for the stolen car, and he's able to walk free once again. On June 11th, the Denver Post checks in with Kenya's family. It's been two and a half months since Kenya's disappearance. But according to her dad... Today's date is April 1st, 2011. I don't know how else to say it. We are stuck there. The article recounts how Kenya's family and friends just crowd the house with support. And her family, unfortunately, has grown accustomed to this new reality as their new normal. Kenya's mom, Maria, who is an incredibly religious woman, She starts to practice fasting every day from 7 a.m. until 3 p.m. in order to help strengthen her prayers. Pictures of Kenya cover their house, and her mom even did this thing where she made up Kenya's old room for her with a canopy bed and Disney posters somewhere for her to be when she got back. But their daughter's case is about to catch a break. Unfortunately, It comes from the assault of another woman. On July 5th, the story of an attack in Fort Collins, Colorado, hits the news. That night, a woman was blitz-attacked at her front door. She was pushed into her apartment, assaulted, beaten, and strangled. Her assailant doused her body with bleach and set her apartment on fire thinking that she was dead. Miraculously, she was not. Yes, and this victim, against all odds after sustaining horrible injuries, manages to get to a window and jump down to the concrete below, breaking both her ankles in the process. And somehow she is able to get help and report to police that she had been attacked. But that is all she is able to do before she suffers a stroke and falls into a coma. Kenya's family sees this story, and while they empathize 
with her and her family and loved ones, they don't make an immediate connection to Kenya's case. However, the police in Fort Collins do. They believe Travis Forbes is behind the attack. They've been keeping an eye on Travis, and they know he's been living in Fort Collins since he got out of jail. Detective Jacqueline Shackley of the Fort Collins Police catches wind of Denver's interest in Travis and reaches out to Denver detective Nash Grulay and suggests that they might just be looking for the exact same person. Detective Shackley tells me all this, and um, she said, I understand that you were surveilling a guy named Travis Forbes on a possibly similar case that happened in Denver, and I just told her, I said, this is him. After going over the two cases, Detective Shackley told the Denver Post that she was stunned. There was silence on the other end of the phone. This was almost so freakishly similar that it had to be the same guy. The victim was around the same age as Kenya. The assailant used bleach in both cases and burned as much evidence as they could. And given Travis's criminal history, it was at least a start. And... They now have Travis's DNA on file since they were able to get it with the car theft case. Right. So they quickly get to work testing the DNA for a match. And in the meantime, they send police to keep a close watch on Travis. On July 10th, just five days after that assault, police follow Travis to downtown Fort Collins where there's tons of bars, it's kind of a big nightlife scene there, and at about 2 a.m., Travis waits outside as people are starting to clear out of the spots that have closed for the night. But they notice something weird. Fort Collins police notice that he's following a girl. He starts talking her up and they're walking together. And he's kind of leading her off the beaten path. And police contact him. He gives a false name. Police know he's up to something. And he tells the police that his name is Travis Kennedy. But for now, the only directive for these police officers is just to watch him, so the police have to walk away. And as soon as Travis thinks he's alone again, he changes his T-shirt, he puts on a hat, and he spots a visibly drunk woman walking alone. And again, he walks up to her, and he tries to lure her again off the main street. But the police intervene again. This time it was called and one of their sergeants says, you know what, just arrest him for the false information. So they arrest him and put him in jail for the false information. Really good call, Fort Collins Police. Get this guy off the street, stat. They hold Travis in jail till he's able to post bond and get out. But just as that happens, the DNA test results from the multiple crime scenes come back and it's a match. Travis isn't going anywhere. So once Travis knows he's been caught, he immediately starts cooperating with the police. It seems like he was almost trying to get caught, but not without the power of negotiating. He says, I'll tell you what I did, where her body is, as long as you don't label me a sex offender and you don't give me the death penalty. And I said, you'll tell me everything. He said, yeah. I said, okay. This monster, Travis leads the police to the side of a highway in northeast Colorado. It's about 40 miles from where Kenya disappeared. And he points the investigators to the exact spot in the grove, just off the beaten path. And there's this sort of tightly packed spot where the dirt looks disturbed. Police put up a tent to block the view from the road, and they start digging. She's buried deep. And the investigators see the potential for a media leak. So they make an incredibly hard call, but a call that is necessary. They call Tony, Kenya's father, to tell him before he or his family sees this on the news. They believe they have found Kenya's body. I needed to get home and let Maria and the kids know before this thing hit the news. So I went out to my truck, and I kind of uh, just sat there. Um, I, I had to control myself before I could go and take away their hope. And I had them, um, and that, 
and that was the toughest thing I've ever done. Woke Maria up. She asked me what was wrong. And I looked at her and I says, Maria, they they found Kenya. And um, and she asked me this question, says, she alive? Where is she? I says, Maria, she's dead. She lost it. And there was nothing I could do for her. After telling Maria, Tony leaves to pick up Kim from school. He tells her teacher that she has a dentist appointment, but Kim knows something just is not right. Her father is serious, and when she gets into the car with him, the radio is turned off. And when she asks why the radio isn't on, he tells her that he just doesn't feel like listening to music. And the two of them drive home in silence. Uh, We get home, I hear my mom, she's just crying like crazy upstairs, like, I'll never be able to forget this cry. He's like, "Um, I have something to tell you. I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, well, they found Kenya. And my first question was, dead or alive? And he said, dead. I didn't think that that was the news that I was going to get. I always thought that my sister was going to come back to me. So when he said that in that moment, it was almost like, how dare you say that? Like, how? Where? Why? Where is she? And, um... I just broke down right there. I just couldn't remember where I was, anything. Travis pleads guilty for the murder of Kenya Monhe and the attempted murder of the Fort Collins woman. He is sentenced to life in prison. His girlfriend serves only 60 days for lying to the police about Travis's alibi the day after the murder. Travis's parents actually reach out to Kenya's family and apologize for what their son did. But Tony tells them that they didn't need to do that. Kenya's sister, Kim, she ends up sending a message to Travis telling him that she prays for him every night and that she hopes that he finds God. And Travis, being the absolute narcissist that he is, he responds back to Kim in a six-page handwritten prison letter. And he writes in it, I murdered your sister because I was a weak and cowardly man. Kim never responds to this letter. A year after Kenya's death, the community gathers together for a memorial walk, and all the participants are encouraged to wear pink, which is her favorite color, and to bring pictures and poems and memories of Kenya to share with her family and her friends and all of her loved ones. And they ask for donations to the newly formed Kenya Monhe Foundation, which helps grieving families and provides self-defense training to women. Ooh, this documentary, it was devastating, right? Oh my God, it was was so heartbreaking. Um, I cried. It It was to see, to actually see this father and this sister grappling with what happened. It was just, it was heartbreaking. And I really struggled to find any sort of silver linings in this tragedy. I mean, I guess what I'll say is that Travis did seem truly like a monster that was headed towards being a serial offender doing this over and over again. And I guess we're blessed that He's off the street. And I am just, I'm so shocked and so disappointed that Travis's girlfriend lied for him. Because, you know, if she hadn't, if she hadn't have provided that alibi, it seems like that poor woman in Fort Collins might never have been attacked. Although, you know, ultimately, it is, of course, no one's fault that happened but Travis's. I also want to note that the DA and Kenya's family believe that this man is a serial killer. And keep in mind, there was a month between when Kenya disappeared and them sort of looking at him. So it's like, you don't think there was anything else that happened in that month? I I just, I doubt it. Because I, I don't think it was a fluke. And I think what's so scary about this story is what Kenya was doing when this happened to her. I know I've been in that situation multiple times. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And that's, I think, what's just so heartbreaking. It's like, 
I think oftentimes in these cases, I think people like to put distance from themselves and a victim because they like to tell themselves, it won't ever happen to me. What are the odds? But I think it's important to know that Kenya is like all of us. We have all made these same choices. We've all gone out for a night of dancing. We've all had something to drink. We've all forgotten our phone places. Some variation of this theme has happened to every woman under the age of 20, I'd bet. And there was no there was no one thing she did wrong, and that's the point. You don't need to do something wrong to come in contact with a predator. Totally, totally. And it breaks my heart. It just it's so sad. It's such a sad story, and I think unfortunately it does fall on friends to protect one another. I mean, I this is a bit of an anecdote, but I remember someone when I first moved to New York, if you felt you were being followed or someone was creepy, you were to find another woman on the train and sit next to them and act like you know them. And I've I've done that before in New York, right, where I've had some drinks or I see a woman with drinks and I go up to her and I say, hey, oh, my gosh, it's so good to see you, right? Like these moments where it really does take a community to protect against these predators. Um, and I wish that wasn't the case, but here we are. In 2021, the number of missing persons under the age of 21 was way, way higher than folks that are over 21. There was 194,673 females under 21 reported missing, like just under 200,000. So look, if you're out with friends, just watch out for each other. Do the buddy system. It should not be your responsibility to protect one another. But, you know, to borrow a phrase from a rapist and murderer, there are weak and cowardly men out there. Look out for each other. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it might just be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for the story, but our main source was the first episode of Lifetime's Text Me When You Get Home series. You can catch it on Lifetime Channel at 11 p.m. Eastern on August 15th, 2022, or you can watch on demand on Lifetime's website. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins and Julie Magruder. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Carrie Ipema and Quinlan Posner. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.